Welcome to Decoding Careers, a podcast to help software engineers transition into a leadership role. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Decoding Careers, the third episode. I'm Sam Yates, your host and the software engineer and recruiter. Now, as you're all aware, I want to share the career journeys of engineering leaders who are at the forefront of technology. This podcast aims to not only inspire other professionals in tech, but serve as a practical guide for those who have been there and done that. Now, today, it's my pleasure, and I'm really excited about this one, to introduce Ricky McAllister. Now, Ricky is the head of engineering at Shift, and for those of you who don't know, Shift supports the growth aspirations of Australian businesses by providing financial solutions which include capital for growth, equipment finance, and trade payment solutions. Now, the company looks to him and his engineering teams to deliver value to customers by ensuring finance on demand. This is made possible through a focus on strong in-house development, partnering with the best of the breed tech providers. Absolutely thrilled to have him on our show. Welcome, Ricky. Right then, so Ricky, you keep talking about the rugby, so maybe we'll get that out of the way at the start. What do you want to What do you want to talk about? Are we sure we want to sour this conversation <laughs> with what happened at the weekend? Are you sure you want to go there, Sam? I definitely do not. <laughs> Let's agree to disagree. Just okay, leave it. Okay. <laughs> so Ricky, Ricky's been pulling my leg since I've bumped into him this evening about the rugby. But we had our B team out, so it, it doesn't matter too much. I'm glad. I'm glad you've got an excuse. <laughs> so, look, really thrilled to have you on our show, Ricky. I know the first time we caught up, um, we didn't press record, which is a shame because you was already on the show before you, you got in the studio, which was good fun. But can already tell this is going to be a good one with the passion that you've got around leadership. And just as a bloke, like you, you obviously you come across like a, a decent bloke that you know has been in worked in good environments and knows what he's talking about as well. So I'm really excited about this one. So the way I always like to start the show, so starting from the very beginning, Ricky, take me back to when you wrote your first line of code. Well, that's a that's a cracker because there was definitely no career at that point. That was me as a as a boy. Toying around on a an Acorn Electron. Some people might remember that. Probably not too many. But it was uh, a line of basic, and I drew a square on the screen. And that, I believe, is when I was hooked. It's been a while, but I've taken that square and I've turned it into a career somehow. And maybe we'll figure it out. And how, how old was you? Do you remember? So the Acorn Electron was... 1983, so I must have been in minus figures back then. Yeah. <laughs> no, in- interesting. Okay, so we drew a square. Do you remember where you were exactly? Oh, yeah. The front room in my house. This was back home in Ireland. I was a young boy. My, my brother was a-, a big game fan. When I'm talking game and I'm talking Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is back in the day. And we, as a family hovered around our Acorn Electron. It was a beautiful sight. That was Friday evenings. That was Saturday mornings. It was it was a family affair. 
I have an old photograph of myself as a, a relatively small child with a little book on programming because that's how you learned to program back in those days. It was a book on BASIC and I'm surprised thinking about it now that that young lad was able to work his way through a book of programming and eventually draw that square on the screen. Yeah, nice. Good nice. on him. Yeah, good on him. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's quite interesting, especially the fact that all the family got together around that. You know, that doesn't happen often anymore. Everyone's sort of preoccupied on the phone or... But it's a good memory to have that you had your whole family around on a Friday night, bringing everyone together and, you know, at least it brought everyone together as well and, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really happen as, as much. No, totally. It's a, a sure sign that technology's been in my life forever. Yeah. I have, I guess, my my family, my brother, my sister to, to thank for that. Why that Acorn Electron was there, aside from playing games, I've, I've got no idea. No idea how it got there. I was that young. Yeah, yeah. Why did you get into software engineering? My first foray into software engineering, if we talk about before starting a career, it was really propelled by my want and desire to be part of the games industry. I loved the fact that people were using code and software to develop games that I could spend hours on as a I was going to say as a child, but as, you know, I'm pretty sure we all know that we're all gaming um, whenever it suits us now. So the truth is the concept of computer science in gaming is still really evident today. But as a child playing computer games, you don't, you don't think about computer science. You think about how can I make this thing do another thing on a screen? How can I move this this character or this box? Or how do I... You weren't calling it collision detection back then, but you were thinking, how does this character interact with that other character on a computer screen? And I think that was originally my my motivation, but that quickly changed to solving problems in, um, I guess, through my education in high school for science and uh, mathematics. I had a natural tendency towards those things. And when it came to working through assignments and tough challenges, I would often tend to work with software to solve some of those problems. But it wasn't software development or software engineering at that point. It was more, um, how do I build formulas and functions in Excel, as an example? How do I make um, a Microsoft Access database have some graphical user interface that I can interact with and, and, and change data and manage data. So I always loved the idea of building those interfaces and those tools that I could see and interact with, whether it's games or projects for science or mathematics or whatever it happened to be. It's quite interesting because a lot of, like, when at a young age, you sort of get obsessed. A lot of engineering leaders that I've spoke to, obviously, as a young age start with playing computer games, but then they start, well, I want to try and do this. I want to bring that together. And how does that work? And it's more like a bit of curiosity that comes to mind. And it seems to be a similar pattern with a lot of the, the engineering leaders that I speak with, well, engineers as well. So it's, um, it's everyone's sort of saying the same thing, but different because everyone's got their, their own different stories behind it. But it sounds like, you're very curious if you've got that engineering mentality. Yeah. 
and challenge, which sums up a, a good engineer as well. I think the, the curiosity concept strikes me because I would pull electronics apart constantly as a teenager just to see how things worked. I had, I don't know if you tell this story, but I had, uh, well, I feel bad even thinking about it now. My brother was a big Star Wars fan and he had a huge collection of Star Wars figurines. What did you do? <laughs> I chucked them in the fire. My mum my mom asked me, why did you do that? I said to her, I wanted to see what they looked like on the inside. <laughs> I feel terrible. No way. I'm talking thousands of dollars worth of Star Wars figures. Because your brother still holds you that to this day? He would never admit to it. But it's, in his, it's on his mind. It's on his mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I didn't expect that. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Apologies to all the Star Wars fans. No. I, am a, I am a huge Star Wars fan, and I will regret this for as long as I live. I'd have been fuming. But how much would they be worth? Today? What's, what's your brother's name? Benny. Benny. I'm sorry. Benny, <laughs> come on. How much are they worth today? <laughs> oh, man, that is great. <laughs> He's never forgiven you, even if you even if you may think he has. Nope. No, definitely <laughs> hasn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> so a question that I like to ask, and like it's not really a trick question. I think it's more for the listeners out there that, really want to understand if they have to go to university to be a software engineer. Like, from your perspective, did you go to university? And if you did, what did you study and how do you think it helped your career? Yes, I did go to university. I, I ended up with a higher national diploma in computing science, a diploma in industrial studies and a bachelor's degree in computing science with full honours. But I found on the build-up to getting to university, I didn't have the want to remember things and study the periodic table and the steps of the Krebs cycle and how you measure power output. Remembering those things didn't really appeal to me. So while mathematics and the natural sciences came really quite naturally to me, I still struggled to hit those high grades consistently. But what I found when I inevitably took the long way to get the degree, I found that the HND or the, the Higher National Diploma back in the UK was a really practical introduction to computing science. I learned to program properly. I learned to interact with databases and I learned about artificial intelligence when it was simply logic. I learned about all of those concepts, but in a really practical sense. And it set me up well for the degree at the end of it. Did I, did I benefit from that? I, th I think so. I do think I did. I have a confidence in my capability. Discrete mathematics, complexity, those kind of techniques that you don't necessarily use every day will randomly pop up and be something that I can use, I can lean on. Did I need to go to university to learn that? No, definitely not. There are so many ways to get that practical 
hands-on experience building software and learning some of those more computing science type techniques and, and methodologies. I'm glad I did. It's not necessarily for everyone. I was lucky growing up that I was surrounded by a good bunch of friends and going to school was was relatively straightforward and easy. So I never looked at learning as a, a challenge, but nor was I massively academic. Mm. Okay, so from an engineering perspective, if you was looking to hire, and I'm sure you've been in this position before, you've got an engineer there that's computer science degree. You've also got another engineer who's self-taught, but you know, shows the same quality, shows the same interest. Does that subconsciously play in your mind that someone has got that degree and the other person hasn't? And do you favour the degree over not having a degree? So I've hired a bunch of people over the years. I will always ask for a third level education. But in all honesty, do I actually look at that on a resume? I, I don't. I'm really interested in the experience and the drive and the motivation and the personality. When a, a third level education is important to me is when you've got no experience to back it up. I'm a huge fan of will and potential and I have had the fortunate experience to work with some really, really, really smart people, really good software engineers who haven't had a third level education and I've been really pleased with how those those individuals approached the work that they did. In fact, I think it was um, Uncle Bob, Bob Martin, Robert Martin, and this is well before my time, I'll have you know, he talked about software engineering or programming in the, in the 60s. And back then, there was no computing science degree. There was no official discipline for computing. It didn't exist. And the people that were employed to program were generally women who had a discipline in one of the sciences or mathematics. And it made an awful lot of sense for those kind of thinkers to be programming. And in fact, the introduction of computing science as a as a discipline eventually lent itself to this kind of one-sided situation where young guys went to university to study computing science. So I think I, I, I always tend towards that as a, mm. as a, a benchmark. I think the other disciplines are really important and how people think about problems and challenge ideas critically is really valuable to me. I've seen some really interesting software engineers who have been successful at, as an example, customer success or customer experience. And they've taken that empathy for the customer and the the end user to build really effective web applications. Mm -hmm. So 
do I value third level education? Yes. Is it everything I'm looking for? Absolutely not. Yeah. And there was an interesting podcast I listened to a few days ago. And again, it was back in the 70s, 80s when this statement was made. The statement that was made was pure ignorance can actually get you really far. Now, ignorance is normally seen as a as a negative, um, but a lot of these courses can put constraints on people because, do you know what I'm saying? Like how you think that's the standard, but if you was to go above that standard, is that holding you back? So I think that can be another point to realise that when you are self-taught, you push the boundaries, you do what you need to do, you probably go above and beyond because you've not got a guideline of tick, you've done that, tick, you've done that, you've got here. What's your thoughts on that? 100% agree. I think when you're not quite sure that you've got the, for instance, the the paperwork to back you up, you're relying entirely on what you're capable of and your your willingness to really deliver value and critically think about the, the problems you're trying to solve. There's a really good mix of individuals who, yes, are third level educated and they know all the sciences related to computing science and they're fantastic at what they do and they can go technically really deep. But on the other hand, you have some really talented people in many, many different ways who are absolutely self-taught. They're self-driven and they are motivated to do the best work that they can when it comes to solving those kind of problems. And I'm a huge fan of those individuals and the drive and motivation that they have. Yeah. Well, there you go, listeners. Ricky McAllister isn't looking for your bachelor's degree, so don't put it on the CV. <laughs> but it, no, but it's a really, really interesting point, and you can probably speak about it you know, for, for hours on, on end. Um, but it's good for the listeners to hear that, that, you know, if you're self-taught, there's no, there's no right or wrong way. As long as you're, you, you've got a bit of drive, personality, and you want to challenge the status quo, you, you're going to go far in the right environment. Totally. I must add. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you need a little bit of support. You, do, you, do, you, need, you need opportunity yeah. and you need support from your leaders and managers to allow you that room and autonomy to, to actually excel and experiment and, and learn as you grow. Yeah. All right. Now... Let's talk about your first job in software engineering. So what was it and how did you get it? Okay, so my first real job in software engineering was as a a junior analyst working for DuPont. Uh, DuPont in Derry, Northern Ireland, was a manufacturer of third generation materials or next generation materials, sorry. And in this case, it was a Kevlar factory. So Kevlar being a, a, a polymer that was used to create bulletproof stab vests for the military. And, and a lot of it was shipped out to the, the military who was fighting in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and, um, all of the, the numerous wars. But the the role that I had was, as I said, junior analyst. And I was one of three in a little office 
next to the factory floor in DuPont. So a very interesting work environment where there was no real leadership in technology. Technology didn't really exist at that point. It was more of an outsourced skill set. So someone supplied the the hardware and people in the office used it. Turning turn the computer on and off. Basically, <laughs> right? That, that was a thing. Um, whereas we, we were responsible for, as three students who spent, I don't know, a month handing over with three previous junior analysts who were um, previously students, and they handed over effectively a bit of a poison chalice because it had been work that previous students and then junior analysts had completed and, and given to them. So the quality of the work probably wasn't great, but still it was essential for running the entire factory floor. You and I talked about this um, previously, Sam, and, and the the value of that factory floor coming to a halt for a day was phenomenal. I won't spout numbers at the moment, but we were as three very young junior analysts or developers were responsible for Olay for process control. We were responsible for logic gates. We were responsible for the software that ran the machinery. And we were responsible, interestingly, for the hardware that the software ran on. And the hardware at that time was aging, had been purchased from an organization overseas that I don't believe was functioning anymore. But one of the one of the interesting stories was the fact that as a young junior analyst, the entire factory floor stopped dead all of a sudden one day. And the only people who could bring the entire factory back up and running again was myself and, and one of the other the other two junior analysts. So we had luckily been pulling old hardware apart for scraps uh, over previous weeks and, and we had happened to to come across um, some strange hardware that had some strange PCI boards and, and interesting components. And we thought we'd, we'd hold on to this. It was interesting. And um, it turned out that those were exactly the parts that we needed in order to get the one machine that was running the entire factory back up and running again. And it was MS-DOS. So that, that's no mean feat. There's no, there's no CD to install. It's floppy disks, if anyone remembers what those are. <laughs> Well, you've told the story better on, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, the I, was wait, I was waiting for that. That's a classic. That is a classic, isn't it? A couple of, couple of junior analysts yeah, saving, yeah. saving the entire organisation. Maybe that's a push, but it felt like that at the time. No, no, I think that's exactly what it was. Um, and I bet you, yeah, yeah it's just, that's a, just a crazy thought of what you'd have been going through there. Talk about sink or swim. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it it kind of um, connects way back to when I was chucking Star Wars characters on the fire and and pulling toasters and kettles apart. It yeah. was exactly the kind of thing that I did growing up and and became very useful yeah. at that point in time. <laughs> so when it was happening, you'd have been like, "I've been through this before." Yeah, <laughs> pretty just, much. Just, yeah. follow, just follow me. <laughs> it was a toaster, but no, yeah. it's something else. <laughs> no, brilliant. Um, okay, well, that was um, 
I've heard that story before, but Ricky's told it. He's told it much better here when he's got got the microphone in front of him. So he's been waiting for that moment. <laughs> so look, I'm getting into the the really meaty part of the show now, which, which is you know the leadership piece, which is so important to you know the senior software engineers or even the software engineers that are listening right now. Um, obviously, what what we're trying to do here is is to help you engineers bridge that gap and help you transition from a, a senior software engineer to a leader. Now, I think what the listeners might want to want to hear a bit more about is like how much impact did your supervisors have on you personally in, in your career? I've been really lucky to see both sides of the coin. I've, I've had some great leaders. I've worked with some great people managers. I've had a few shockers as well. So let's just let's just talk a bit about that. Sure. A great manager. Give me two maybe give me two attributes of what a great manager looks like to you mm. and two attributes of what a shocker looks like. Okay. A great manager, someone who listens. And what I mean by that is they won't necessarily present solutions to you all the time. They'll listen to what you have to say and they'll support you and and the decisions you you inevitably make. Um, second thing is is empathy. I think as leaders we need to be empathetic to people's situations and positions. We need to be compassionate to their life and their lifestyle and and their personalities. Each one of us is a a unique little snowflake, and unless we can demonstrate a certain level of empathy, we'll struggle to be a good people leader. Um, when it comes to shockers, you could almost just turn that on its head. Mm. But I, I think one of the key things for me is someone who's just not visible, not reliable. You, they're, they're not accountable. They don't want to take any of the blame when something goes wrong. They look to you as, as part of the problem instead of trying to understand where the problem comes from and, and, and working from that, that perspective. And then, of course, I think someone who doesn't necessarily understand their own level of empathy and emotional IQ, because not everyone is empathetic, not everyone has a high emotional IQ, but some people realise it and they can work around it, and that's fine. It's the folks who don't that can be potentially toxic and, and disarming in terms of making life difficult for their their direct reports. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're bang on there. I think ownership, you know, mm. taking ownership, you know, it's a sign of a good leader. If you've done good or bad, just just own up for it. Even if you haven't done it and you, you're the leader of the team, you put your hand up and you go, look, that was me and this won't, this won't happen again. But I think when, when people have got a bit of an ego in the way or they're scared to fail, I think that's where the resistance kicks in. Yeah, I think in my own, from my own perspective, yeah. if I think about that a little bit, I own my team's failures. If they're not performing, then it's it's probably on me. You and I talked about this actually a little yeah. while ago. It's it's if my team is not doing their best work, then there's something that I've not removed in terms of impediments or blockers or there's something I've not coached effectively or there's something I've not shared in terms of context. But also the the flip side of that is when my team is successful, I've got to be humble. 
You know, it's not me that made that happen. It's secretly, I'm thinking that I helped, you know. But at the end of the day, I can't be the one taking the praise for that. It's, right. it's the team's success. It's the team's opportunity to shine and ability to make it happen in the end. Because I am naturally one of those individuals who, who will delegate decisions and provide autonomy to help build self-organizing teams. So I, in theory, I can't really take any of the credit. Mm. Well, because you're a good leader. Maybe. <laughs> do I tick the boxes? You, you, you do. You've, you've passed the test. <laughs> I need to see who's created this test. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. No, but I think that's good. Uh, great bit of advice for the listeners as well. You know, it's a leadership role comes with so many different unique challenges. And I think the first one is, you know, if, you, if your ego's in the way, you're not ready. I think really think about that before you make the step up because um, you're going to be in for a shock. Um, not only you've got to take ownership, but if you start running around the office like a lunatic when something goes well and it's all about yourself, it's probably not the best best place to be. Magnanimous in victory, yeah. I think, is is the way of, of, of putting it. Was you like that at the rugby, though? Was you... No, 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 I'm I'm a real sore around, winner. Running around yeah. the room with the top off. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Calling all my English friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'll make sure I don't pass you my number. <laughs> Deleted. <laughs> all right, brilliant. Okay, now, really interesting one, and you know, a good one for the listeners to learn a bit more about. When did you make your first step into a leadership role? Do you know, it was very early in my career, actually. I um, I thought we weren't bragging. <laughs> <laughs> it was not by choice. <laughs> Let's make that clear. Um, I, I'll go back a little bit. So I worked for DuPont for a little while, but before that I was building websites for Ballycastle United Football Club. And somehow someone noticed this and thought they'd give me a job building websites. So that was my second professional job was building websites for weddingsonline.ie check it out um, no idea if it's still around <laughs> it should be who knows they still have weddings right so the the role that I played in that organization from day one was as a senior developer because there were no other developers I progressed to the point where I was building a team within the next six months and I was effectively the senior developer and technical resource manager. So I had to learn on my feet very, very quickly at that point. I had no experience leading in a professional space, but I alluded to Ballycastle United Football Club where I had been coaching a football team and managing the reserve football team from a, actually from about 19 years of age. So I had elements of leadership in different areas of my social and, and extracurricular curricular lifestyle. So I was, um, I was someone who leaned into leadership without really realizing it. And I think a few people in my career noticed that and they allowed me to become a person who led other people, even at a very early stage, which was, if I think about it now, that real catalyst to 
inevitably deciding many years later that I actually want to lead people and I should make it a thing. I, I need to drive for leadership because people think I can do it. I think I can do it. I enjoy it. So let's lean in. Let's let's make it a thing. Do you think getting that recognition along the way that you're doing a good job helps? Yeah. Yeah. I think any profession, it does. Totally. I, I think that gives you that confidence. You go again, but I think you've got to be surrounded by the right people because there is the can be jealous people around as well that if they do see you doing well, they might try and hinder your performance. So I think that, again, is key about surrounding yourself with, with the right sort of people because it's good to get that. I love I love you leading us, Ricky, and, you know, you do... Yeah. No, but it, it, I bet it makes a massive difference. It's true, it's true. I, I, people who know me know that I probably don't take um, negative feedback particularly well. It's something I've constantly had to work on. But I tell you, I love positive feedback, and, and uh, we're lying if, if we, we say we don't. Um, I think there's a study, there's been a few studies where we equate one piece of negative feedback is equivalent to five pieces of positive feedback. Or if you turn that on its head, we need five pieces of positive feedback in order to counter one piece Ooh. of negative feedback. So it's very difficult nice. to get that balance. Um, and, you know, as, as, as a leader, I think it's really important to consider those kind of statistics and, and, and ways of working because, yes, I love to get feedback. We all know we love to get positive feedback, really good constructive feedback. Um, but sometimes you'll get a little bit of negative feedback and it doesn't really align with how you thought you were doing. And that's okay. But if you're going to be the person giving that feedback you've got to be really conscious of the fact of the impact that that negative feedback on the individual and I'm not saying don't give negative feedback I think we've got to be really clear I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Kim Scott's radical candor but the important thing about radical candor is that you've got to be someone who actually cares about the person you're giving the, the feedback to so if I don't know you particularly well, I would tend not to give you terrible feedback. I'll find better ways, the SBI model, for instance, situation, behavior, impact, to give more context around the feedback rather than just being radical and candid about that feedback. So it takes a bit of time and effort to get to the point of radical candor, but it's a very effective way to really give meaningful feedback to the people that you're responsible for and encourage growth in the right areas. I can just picture the software engineers typing typing in... Radical candor. Radical candor. <laughs> yeah, SBA. <laughs> that's, that's a, probably the... I'm going to call it... It's probably the best piece of leadership advice we've had on the show so far. Out of three whole... Out of, out of three whole people. <laughs> and they're all, they're all going to be on to me as well. <laughs> I reckon he's just saying it. <laughs> I, say, I say it to everybody on the show. <laughs> no, no, that was a um, great piece of advice. It's so true. And it is, like when I, when I relate to it from, from my side, like, yeah, the more close... And the more you believe in someone, the more I actually give, give them a good grilling. Yeah. Because you believe in them, you're investing in them, and you're trying to break down a few barriers to build them back up. 
Um, grilling might not be the best word, but but anyway, I've, I've I've said it. Do you know who was the best at giving feedback to me growing up? My mum. She used the "I'm disappointed in you," but it worked because she cared. I'm not angry. I'm, <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> so we say hello to the to the mothers now. Yeah, for sure. Hey, mum. Hello, hello mum. <laughs> But it's so true. But I get that from the missus, to be honest with you. Oh, no. I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll move on from that because we can talk about that all day as well. Now, what would be really interesting for the listeners to learn a bit about is a lot of us, and we're seeing it day on day out, like a lot of engineers are really struggling to take that leap into the engineering world. And I think a lot of a lot of engineers know what to do. Um, I think a lot of it's around confidence and I think they really want to listen to the show to hear it from your perspective of, you know, what was the hardest thing, in in your opinion, about stepping into a leadership role? Yeah. Honestly, I, I think being so fresh to leadership, and I, I talk about there are a few inflection points in, in my career. The first one was when I was a professional in a professional environment and I became a leader um, through no fault of my own. Um, And then, of course, the inflection point when I knew I wanted to be a leader, um, which came a little later. In the first instance, the biggest gap for me was just not understanding what a good leader looked like. And we all have to learn that. And you can't get 10 years experience in six months. It takes 10 years. That's the point. The only way we can shortcut that is by consuming a hell of a lot of information, by working with some really good leaders, learning from everyone in the industry that you can, and and outside of the industry that you can trouble for a question, for a a, a point, for a, a little bit of little bit of advice I was never very good at finding mentors and sticking with mentors but I, I did leverage the the input and the advice from the the people who were naturally mentors in and around my, my sphere of influence I would always encourage people to read to watch videos on YouTube about leadership to someone like Simon Sinek, you know, the 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 author of Why and um, What a great oh, that is. Start with so why. Good. Start with why. It was so simple. It's so good, Just right? Just on a circle, three circles, start here, work your way out. Yep. He had another book. Oh he gave a talk on the second book. I, I, uh, I want to say the Infinite Game, but he he kind of he he extends upon that conversation and that discussion and really goes into how we we are good leaders and and what makes a good leader. Um, but that's exactly the kind of individual you want to learn from. And back in the day when I was becoming a leader that I didn't even realise was happening. I didn't have people like that around me, so it took me a long time. Um, and I think the the inflection point later in my career was more of a, I know what I should be doing now. I, I, I'm not necessarily great at it. I've got some some good traits and, and I can build upon that. The feedback's been positive. I, I, I can make this happen, but 
there are a lot of practical things that I don't know how to do, like have a one-to-one with someone. Michael Lopp wrote the book Managing Humans. It's such a great practical guide in how to just have a conversation in a one-to-one, how to let people have a vent if they want to have a vent. The detail and the information in that book itself is enough to just get started. I'm just saying it. I'm calling it. What's that one? What's that one called? Managing Humans. Managing Humans by Michael Lopp. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting read. Very, very interesting read. It's it's been, I don't know, it's maybe in its third edition now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but definitely worth picking up if you're thinking about leadership and leaning into it. A lot of things that, particularly in, in software engineering, we we don't necessarily have a common job description for what a leader is. It doesn't really exist. Um, and there's even a, a huge difference and something I've, I've just been working through with, with Shift in terms of our, our uh, career framework and our career pathways is what are the titles and the roles and the responsibilities and, and the competencies associated with software engineer, people leader, and the, the various stages of, of growth and development. For a lot of people, a tech lead is not a people manager, as an example. And we've gone through the process of creating a, first of all, a technical team lead and then an engineering team lead, which kind of relates more to software engineering, but is very much a people leader role and the responsibilities that come along with that. And some of the things that you you must do as a leader, the practical things, the day-to-day, like having a a good conversation with your direct reports, ensuring that you have a growth and development plan for the people that you're responsible for. They're not necessarily known things. You've you've got to work that out. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting. These titles interest me. Mm. You know, and to the listeners, I know titles are important, but there is, there's a lot of people getting caught up in certain titles this day and age. And I'm just going to, I know I'm saying it and, you're thinking it, but I'll just I'll just say it, Ricky. It's all right. Um, <laughs> but no, it's um, it's more about what you're doing. Yep. I know everyone wants to be called a certain team lead or tech lead, but mm-hmm. I think if you're an engineer that's looking to be the best, I don't think the best worries about what they call themselves. Correct. I think if you're that good, you're not worried about that. You're worried about performance, activity, making you know a real development. That's, that's my, my view on it, and there's a lot of people getting caught up with it these days. I, I want to be really clear. I think if, if you think you are a thing, then you should be doing that already. Yeah. And that's exactly how the first half of my career went. I'm a developer. I'm a developer. I'm a developer. But I'm leading people. Oh, how did that happen? Yeah, right? exactly. I, I was doing that. I was leaning into it. I was responsible for people. I was hiring people. I don't know if I should tell the story. Oh, I missed that one. My first interview of a candidate where I worked in this little web development agency and we had a, a guy called John coming around to to interview for a, a senior developer role and um, we had a knock at the door. It was a little unit so all of the office was in one floor. Yeah. The front door was the front door. That was it. I opened the door and I said, hi John. I oh, said, oh. Hey, put his hand out, shook hands. I said, "Come on in." He had a folder with him. I thought, oh, "This guy's this this guy's good." 
This guy's he's come he's come prepared. I like this guy already. I'll probably just hire him because remember, I'm an inexperienced leader. I uh, I'm not really sure how this works, but anyway, John sat down and um, got chit chatting. How's your day? All of the niceties and the the director of the company came along because it's a small company, so director and and the technical resource manager, me at that time, sat down to interview this developer, and uh, John was like, "This is great. I love this." Oh my God. I'm, I'm I'm glad you're you're enjoying the the conversation. This is, this is really good. But shall we get down to down to business now? And uh, we'll start with a few questions. And 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 John looked a little puzzled. And he's a bit confused. And um, I thought I, I could see in his face. I thought ah, maybe he's just not as prepared as I thought he was. And and anyway, John decided to open up his folder, and it was actually a folder filled with seals. Documents. He was. He, he came from a telco to sell us stuff. His name happened to be John, and it was pure potluck that he arrived just before the real John. He must have been thinking, "What aftershave have I put on today?" He thought he nailed it. Right? He yeah. was. He was selling telco to us. Easy, no problem. Quality, quality. <laughs> I got totally off off topic. Upon. No, no, that was a quality. Like, imagine being in that position where. You're coming in, and it's sort of too good to be true. He's, he's probably thinking, "This guy's all right. I'll come. I'll come back here again." <laughs> I think that actually the, the moral of this story is, you know what? You're going to fail as a leader over and over and over again. You're going to make silly mistakes. You know what? Just like move on. Get it's fine. Dust yourself off. It's good. Perfect. And look, lastly, what's next for Ricky McAllister? Ah, what a good question. Look, I've never really known what was next for Ricky McAllister, aside from that one inflection point when I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll make a go of it in terms of leadership. I reckon the world is my oyster, our oyster, if you want to say it that way. I think in the, the industry that we work within, we've got an awful lot of options. I reckon I'll be doing what I'm doing for a while. That's, that's for sure. It, it's an enjoyable role. I've got an awful lot of impact to have in this space that I, I operate within and, and Shift is a, is a fantastic op, uh, organization to work with and something that I'm really passionate about is really building that, that culture of software engineering and we're at a real point in that journey at the moment that I'm enjoying going to work every day. I think we're lucky in, in this industry that most of us do love just stepping up and going to work. We're bouncing off the walls trying to get there every day. But in the long term, I don't know. I'd, like, I've never quite made that computer game. I've never done that yet. It's, you know, I've had a few cracks, uh, uh, little bits and pieces on myself, uh, but how do I get involved in that space? Maybe that's what's, what's next in yeah. a few years' time. Perfect. Well, Ricky, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure. I feel like we could have, unfortunately, 35 to 40 minutes is the norm attention span. <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've got to wrap it up, but... I feel like we could have we could have kept chatting all evening. Um, but absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Um, some really good perspectives there, some good books to, to listen to and to read as well. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sam. Anytime. Cheers. You've been listening to Decoding Careers with Sam Yates. This podcast is proudly brought to you with the support of recruitment agency discovered people to find out more go to discoveredpeople.com.au